Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Verse 33, we come to the crucifixion of Christ who has come for us. Well, we come to uh, the crucifixion of Christ, climax of the book of Matthew. This is, is all that Matthew has been working towards is this moment where Christ will die on the cross for our sins. These six hours between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. on this Friday in the springtime in Israel, the most important six hours in all human history. You know, you think of all the great battles in our nation's history, the Gettysburg battle and D-Day and, and Normandy, significant battles. No more significant battle in all of human history that, than that which was fought by Christ and won by Christ on Calvary. And so what we want to do this morning, I, I, I probably bit off more than I could chew, and we're just going to slow down this morning because we don't want to miss the fullness of the beauty of what Christ does here for you and for me. You see, as we come to the cross, you need to be mindful. This is, this is not just an expression of love. This is not just God's statement towards evil. Jesus is making the payment that God demands for our sin. It is what we call substitutionary atonement. That Christ is dying in our place. So as we walk through this, be mindful that everything that Christ endures, all the judgment and wrath of God that is poured out on him should have been ours. It should have been poured out on us. But he will drink the wrath of God's cup so that you and I would never have to. So with that in mind, let's pray together. We'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you that you have come for us. And we pray this morning as we come to Matthew's record of Christ's death on the cross, that you would make your word alive to us today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would calm our hearts this morning, that nothing would distract us from hearing your voice in your word. And again, or maybe some for the very first time, being overwhelmed at the magnitude of Christ's love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We've got to back up a little bit in verses 31 and 32 that we didn't catch last week when we were together. It says there, after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. In verse 32, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Much has been made of this man Simon, a lot of conjecture surrounding uh, both his history preceding this and what would come of his life after it. Um, there are many 
who believe that uh, Mark, who writes the Romans, includes that his two sons were Rufus and Alexander. And we know in Romans 16, there's a Rufus mentioned there. Uh, we know that there is a first century martyr in Rome named, uh, named Alexander. And so many believe that Simon would go on to be a leader in the church at Rome and would have two sons who would serve him also in that church. And very well may have been the case. I believe to a large extent, Simon, what he does here is a picture for all of us of what it means to take up our cross and deny ourselves and to follow him. That in many ways, we are suddenly pressed into service. That Christ comes to us. He, he changes us. And at least initially, uh, following Christ is not something that we willingly or joyfully do. It's something that we die to. We die to ourselves and we, we're pressed into service by God. God. And a lot of conjecture there. I think for Matthew, the main point is that Christ is now so depleted that he cannot carry his own cross. And the Romans know we got to have him on that cross to die. He can't die along the way. And so they pull out Simon to carry the cross for Jesus. And in verse 33, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha, significant mount here in this same vicinity, uh, also known as Mount Moriah or Calvary, in this same vicinity is the location where Abraham would take Isaac and he would take him up on that mountain and he would offer him unto God and, and God would speak from heaven and say, no, spare the son and provide a ram in the thicket. On this same mountain, in this same uh, vicinity, as the nation of Israel is being judged for David's sin of pride and in the census, David will mount this same hill and he will cry out to God and say, don't strike the sheep, strike the shepherd. Take me, take, take my life, not theirs. And, and God will instruct him to go and make sacrifice. In this same vicinity, in this same area, Solomon would build a temple and thousands upon thousands of lambs would be slain as a symbolic reminder to the people of Israel that somebody has to die. And right here, Christ will, will mount this hill and there's going to be no voice from God saying, spare, spare the son." There'll be no voice from God saying, go make sacrifice. There'll be no more lambs that are offered. All, all the symbols are now being fulfilled in the substance of Jesus Christ who lays down his life for us. So they take him to Golgotha, verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Wine mixed with gall was a sedative. It was often offered to criminals or maybe even an occasion some believe forced upon criminals knowing that a criminal who comes to his moment of death could occasionally become very violent. And so they would give this wine mixed with gall as a means of calming the individual or sedating them. And it's offered to Christ and yet as he tastes it, he immediately refuses it because Christ will not be sedated at his most glorious hour. He will not numb himself to the full weight of God's wrath that is about to be poured out upon him. And so he refuses the wine and the gall. And in verse 
35, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. A powerful picture here that Christ, as he dies from an earthly perspective, he dies totally impoverished. That Christ right here, you could take all of his possessions, you can essentially roll dice for them and walk away with them in your pockets. From an earthly perspective, totally impoverished. But from a heavenly perspective, he is gloriously and infinitely wealthy. And what a powerful picture that that nobody followed Christ because of his wardrobe. Nobody followed Christ because of his fancy camel. And I can tell you today, if you follow Christ, I cannot promise you that you will lose 20 pounds. And I cannot promise you that you'll get a better job or your bank account will grow. But what I can promise you is that if you will trust in Christ, what you gain in him will far surpass anything you give up or you lose. That as Paul said to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the church at Smyrna and Revelation, Jesus would say to them, I know of your poverty, but you are rich. If you are here today, you may not have a dime, earthly speaking, but if you have Jesus, you are eternally wealthy in him. So these guards cast lots for his possessions. Verse 36, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They would often put the charge of the criminal above him as he was crucified. And so Pilate just has this charge, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Why? Because there is no charge against Jesus. He's guilty of nothing except that he claims to be the Son of God. And Pilate is demonstrating. In fact, the Jews didn't want this written. They will tell Pilate and the other Gospels, they'll say, uh, don't write the king of the Jews. Write that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. In other words, Pilate is going on record to know you've got nothing against this guy. He's not dying for something that he's done. He's dying because of who he is. He's the perfect lamb of God. And in verse 38, and at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, which is a fulfillment of Scripture that he was numbered among the transgressors. In fact, we're probably not going to get there this morning But you'll remember in Isaiah 53, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was numbered among transgressors, a common criminal. And what would they do with common criminals? They just throw them away. Common grave. 
And God says, not my son. And he's going to move in the heart of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who's a rich man. And he says, not my son. My son will be with a rich man in his death. Numbered among the transgressors. And in verses 39 through 44, the nation as a whole will mock him. It says in verse 39, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he, if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. What we see here is the paradox of Christianity. That these people who are, are mocking him, saying, if you're all powerful, save yourself. If you're really the son of God, if God really loves you, why doesn't he show up right now and rescue you? But you see, the paradox of Christianity is that if Jesus saves himself, then he can't save us. If God rescues Christ at this moment, then God can't rescue you and me. If Jesus comes down, you and I go up. Apart from Christ's death, we are condemned in our sins. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Christ dies in our place. And in the midst of this mocking, as he's strung up on this cross, the other gospel writers inform us of the, the reaction of Christ to this moment. And it tells us that his primary inclination in the midst of all these hurling of insults and mocking, the inclination of his heart is primarily prayer. He prays. It was always the primary attitude of Christ's heart was to pray. Often for us, it's the last resort. And Jesus will pray, and do you remember what he prayed? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That the inclination of Christ's heart was forgiveness towards his executioners. One commentator said that if Jesus had not prayed this prayer, there's a good chance the entire universe would have been consumed. I mean, imagine parents, your child... Imagine them innocent. That might be hard to do. But imagine them innocent. Having done no wrong and yet somebody lays hands on your child to kill them and to mock them and to spit upon them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were able in that position, I would kill that individual. And yet the inclination of Christ's heart Father, forgive them. He doesn't forgive their sins. He does that in other occasions. 
But here he's praying essentially for their salvation. And what's more, he's praying for our salvation as well because we are as much guilty as they. And having prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners, Luke's gospel tells us that he has a conversation with one of the criminals. One of the criminals has been watching Jesus. He's been watching Jesus refuse the the wine mixed with gall. He's seen Jesus respond to his executioners by praying their forgiveness. And somehow something happens in the heart of this criminal and the light begins to dawn on this Jew. And he comments to the other criminal. He says, do you not fear God? What is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of God. Do you not fear God? And he says to that other criminal, we're getting what we justly deserve. In other words, we're sinners. And this man has done nothing wrong. And I believe, I don't know how, maybe he remembers a Sunday school lesson. Maybe he remembers... The words of John the Baptist who said of Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe he remembers the sacrifices or a sacrifice that he participated with his father as he brought a lamb that was silent before its shears. I don't know. But somehow by the Spirit of God, the light begins to dawn on this Jew and he realizes he's not dying for his sins. He's dying for me. And what does he say to Jesus? Does he begin to say, Jesus, um, I've done a lot of good works. And so on the basis of my good works, could I come, come with you? Could I, could I be? Nah. It's hard to earn your salvation when you've got nails in your hands and your feet. And so what does, he, what does he ask? Remember me. Jesus, I'm just praying somehow you would remember my name. Somehow you'd bestow mercy and grace on me because I know I can't do anything to earn salvation. And he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He recognizes Jesus as a king. He recognizes somehow that Christ is going to overcome death and he's going to have a kingdom. Isn't this amazing? I mean, when you think about this, he understands theology proper. He understands who God is. He understands Christology. He understands who Jesus is. Harmartiology, which is a study of sin. He understands his own sin. He understands anthropology. He understands soteriology. This guy becomes a theologian simply by placing his faith in Jesus Christ. But isn't that what the grace of God does? It takes thieves and turns them into theologians on the basis of grace. That is powerful. Remember me. And Jesus says, today, not tomorrow, not next week, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today, you'll be with me. What makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven heaven is that's because that's where Jesus is. We get to be with him. Be with me in paradise. And then the final thing that John's gospel records is that Jesus finds his mother. He sees his mama. Every good Jewish boy knew you've got to take care of mama. 
right there in the middle of those Ten Commandments is what? Honor your father and your mother. Joseph, we don't know what happened. He's already gone. Why doesn't Jesus entrust his mama into his uh, half-brother's hands? Because they don't know Jesus yet. They've not trusted. Why doesn't he entrust her to the nation? Because he knows there's a bond in the body of Christ. And so he looks at his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. And he looked at the disciple and said, son, behold your mother. And he puts Mary into the keeping of John and more broadly, he puts his mother into the keeping of the church. You know, it's said that true character, the true character of a man is revealed by how he responds when things don't go his way. Well, right here is a man and nothing is going his way. He has been betrayed by one of his own. He's been denied by his closest friends. He's been arrested falsely. He's been tried and found innocent, and yet because of envy, they've strung him up on a cross to kill him. They've whipped him, they've beaten him, they've mocked him, they've spat upon him. He's got nails in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns on his head. And what is the inclination of his heart? Other people. Which was always the inclination of his heart. It's almost like he can't operate outside of this nature, this character of God, which is a laying down of his life. And so in the midst of this, he forgives his executioners. He evangelizes a criminal. And he takes care of his mama. That's what you call perfect moral righteousness and now it's noon and Matthew tells us in verse 45 something strange happens from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour darkness falls it's noon Passover occurs during a full moon so this is not an eclipse you know the sun in scripture is a picture of God It's not God, but it's a picture of God. So that the grace of God being displayed on a person is often referred to as the countenance of God falling upon them. And darkness in Scripture is a picture of judgment. So that in Exodus, when darkness comes, it's a sign of judgment upon Egypt. In Revelation, when darkness comes, it's a sign of God's judgment upon the world. Right here, darkness falls as a sign of God's judgment upon his son. And God, who is holy and cannot look upon sin, turns his face away. Most believe it's at this moment that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That for the first time, for all eternity, 
Christ is separated from the Father as he bears your sin and mine on his shoulders. And for three hours, we get nothing from the cross. It's as if God pulls back the shade and says, this is between me and my son. And after that three hours, Jesus emerges from the darkness in verse 46. And it says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's referred to as the orphaned cry of Emmanuel. The only time Jesus does not refer to God as his father. And the first time in the midst of all Jesus' suffering that he cries out. He cries out not because of the lashes of the whip on his back. He cries out not at the nails in his hands and his feet. But as the father turns his face away and he bears our sin, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, just insert your name. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just put your name right there. He dies for you. He dies for me. Verse 47, and some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man's calling out for Elijah. And it's recorded in the gospels that at this moment, Jesus cries out, I thirst. He desires to make another statement, and yet he can't. You ever had cotton mouth? Maybe two a days, football practice, basketball, or maybe you've just so exerted yourself in some activity that your mouth is so dry that you desire to speak, but you can't. And here's Jesus. He's spent. He's completely dehydrated. There's nothing left, and yet he desires to speak. And so he cries out, I thirst. If you remember correctly, in the Old Testament, there's another individual named Samson who, as he stands between the Philistines and the people of God, and the Philistines are coming to destroy God's people, it's sure and certain death, and the people of Israel hand over Samson to him. They just tie Samson up and say, here you go, Philistines, maybe if you kill him, you won't kill us. And they offer up this man, Samson, and Samson, the Spirit of God comes upon him, he breaks the bonds that are around him, and he takes the jawbone of a donkey, and with the jawbone of a donkey... He kills the entire Philistine army. He takes the instrument of death and defeats sure and certain death and saves the people of Israel. And there as he stands on that mountain, he cries out in these same words of Christ, I thirst. And it says that the ground beneath him breaks forth and water springs up out of the earth and the place of death becomes the place of life. Well, right here, Jesus is going to take the instrument of death across and he's going to use it to defeat the enemy of death. And as he dies, he cries out, I thirst. And the place of death will become the place of life for all who believe in Jesus. Isn't that good? Well, he cries out, I thirst. 
And in verse 48, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him a drink. Um, this is sour wine, watered down wine. Um, it was given to slaves, laborers, um, and, and often offered to criminals. And, and most of the time it was refused because while it might provide a brief moment of relief, it just prolonged your suffering. But Jesus desires to make a statement and he receives this watered down wine and then it tells us in John's gospel that he cries out it is finished one word in the Greek to tell us thy it's in a tense that demonstrates that the action is completed once and for all never to be repeated again what has been completed what has been done the work for your salvation and mine Jesus has done it all Nothing is left to be done except to believe in Jesus. We rest in our salvation not because we're lazy, but because God is thorough. And he did it all. And for you to seek to add anything to your salvation other than faith in Christ alone is an affront to Christ and what he accomplished in his death on the cross for you. He did all the work knowing you couldn't do it. And he leaves it to us to believe on him. And then it tells us, verse 49, the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I believe it's Luke Gospel that tells us, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Sinful men and women don't commit their spirit to God. You and I, we don't enter into God's presence and say, God, here I am. I know you've been waiting on me. Look at me. We don't do that, do we? The author of Hebrews says what? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Yet Christ, what does he say? Father, because he's perfectly obedient. And he says, into your hands I commit In other words, he doesn't, it's, it's not as though he's overcome by the elements. It's not that he dies because his heart ran out or he couldn't breathe. He commits his spirit. He willingly lays it down of his own initiative for you and I. And he commits his spirit unto God. How would you like to be Jesus? No one to place your faith in for salvation because you're the source of salvation. No one to trust you because there's no one above him. He's not saved because he was never lost. He enters not by faith. He enters by works. And he is the perfect lamb of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he will go to that cross and he will fulfill all righteousness. He will go with the righteousness that's innate in him because he's God and an earned righteousness because he lived this life in the same power as you and I, but he always said no to sin and yes to God. And therefore, he alone is uniquely qualified to die for your sins and for mine. Two truths you gotta see in this. Number one, Jesus is perfect 
even unto death. He lived like no one else. He dies like no one else. In fact, next week, we're going to see some Roman centurions. You want some firsthand witnesses? We've heard a lot about first and second-hand witnesses these days, haven't we? I don't know about you. I want some firsthand witnesses. Here are some firsthand witnesses that were some hard men who had watched a lot of, lot of people die. And yet their conclusion will be what? Surely this man is a son of God. He is perfect. And he dies for you. He dies as a substitute for your sin so that you and I through faith in Christ might be freed from the penalty of sin. Purchased, redeemed by the blood of Christ. You probably heard me tell this story before. It's one of my favorites. Little boy who built his boat, built that little boat perfectly, spent a lot of time, carved out that boat from pieces of wood, put a mast on it and a sail, painted it beautifully, put his name on the side. Boy, it was his creation. He loved it. He took it out one day on a lake next to his house. Beautiful spring afternoon, put it on the water, attached a little string to it and let that boat sail. And he was so enamored with the beauty of his boat and it out sailing on the water that he didn't see the storm approaching behind him. And the winds picked up very quickly and the winds began to overcome the boat. And as he tried to pull it in, the string broke and he lost his boat. It was gone. After the storm, he searched all over along the shore and couldn't find it. A few days later, he's in town with his mom and at a little shop there next to the lake. And he looks over and out of the corner of his eyes, he catches that boat. And it's hardly recognizable because it's been beat up bad. It's got chips in the wood. The paint's gone. The mast is broken. The sail is torn. But it's his boat. And he goes to the shop owner and he says, how much for the boat? And the price is more than he has. So he goes home and he sells everything of value that he has. He completely empties himself of anything of value. And he takes all that he has and he goes back to that store owner and he puts down the price and he buys back his boat. And as he is leaving, he says, twice you were mine. I made you, I lost you, but now, now I bought you and you are mine. Isn't that our story? That God made us in his image, put his stamp on us. But then he lost us. Sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, it's infected all of us. And boy, we got broken by the world, didn't we? And our lives were a mess. But God still loved us because we were his. But there was only one way to buy us back. And so he sent his son Jesus to pay the price that God demands for our redemption. Twice you were mine. I made you. I lost you. But now I bought you. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you.
that you loved us so much despite all of our sin, despite all of our brokenness, that you sent your one and only son to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we should have, so that we could have a life in you. God, I I just pray right now for anybody that doesn't know your son Jesus, doesn't know your forgiveness, doesn't know your salvation. Lord, I don't know where they've been looking for salvation. I don't know what they're trusting in today, but I pray that they would see there's only one hope that they have for salvation, one, only one solution to the brokenness of their heart, and his name is Jesus. And I pray that they would be so overwhelmed by the depth of your love for them that they couldn't help but respond in faith. And today, they would be born again. Born again by the Spirit of God, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Your word says it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. I pray, Lord, that today, having looked upon your love in the giving of your son, that they would turn from their sin and they would find a greater treasure in you. God, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, how you can be freed from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. We'll have pastors here at the front. Love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. Maybe you just want to pray here at the front. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. This is your time this morning. Know this. You will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.